Hey, welcome to another episode of The Spear, a podcast by the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Amble, Editorial Director at MWI, and The Spear is our platform to explore the combat experience. I'm really excited about the two guests that we have today. MWI's Major Jake Moraldi sits down for a conversation with two company commanders who took part in the battle to retake Mosul from ISIS. I'm Captain Mark Schwartzis, the Alpha Company 2325 commander. Uh, in West Mosul, I was partnered with the 9th Iraqi Armored Division and the specifically the 37th Armored Brigade. Our focus was advising, assisting, and enabling them through the sort of conventional maneuver fight. And I'm uh, Captain Brett Reichard. I was the Bravo Company Commander of 2325, and I was a, an advisor to the Counterterrorism Service in West Mosul. Um, predominant role is, is striking in support of and working by, with, and through the CTS. Um, block by block in what was probably the most violent urban battlefield since World War II. Now, as regular listeners will notice, there's something unique about this episode. Most of the stories we feature represent a very direct experience of combat. Stories from people who, at least in that moment, during that fight, are at the sharpest end of the spear. But what about when we decide to fight a war differently? To use the phrase the U.S. military has adopted by, with, and through a partner force. What does combat look like from that perspective? That's what you'll hear about in this episode. Captain Zwergstas and Captain Reichert share a number of stories from their time working with Iraqi forces. Together, they paint a very vivid picture of things like the remarkable complexity of an urban battlefield, for example. They also point to some elements of warfare that, frankly, we haven't experienced all that much over the past couple decades. Things like leveraging cyber tools, fighting on the electromagnetic spectrum, and off-the-shelf quadcopters calling into question the notion of air supremacy that we've enjoyed for a long, long time. It's a really great conversation. Before we get to it, though, a couple quick notes. First, if you aren't yet subscribed to The Spear, you can do so on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And if you're enjoying the stories we feature, we would love it if you'd take just a moment and give us a rating or leave a review. And second, as always, what you're about to hear are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. All right, enjoy the episode. Welcome, guys. Thank you for coming and talking to us. Um, you know, the battle for Mosul, in, in Army circles especially, is pretty well known, pretty well understood. Um, but for sort of the layperson, can you describe, and, and either you can field this, what generally was happening in Mosul, why were we doing what we were doing there? I mean, what, what was the purpose of, of what you guys were doing in Mosul? I'll take that. Um, Mosul in 2014 was obviously taken by ISIS, and this doesn't need to be a podcast about who ISIS is, but it's important to the conversation about what it is in the context of the battle for Mosul. Um, and there have been many arguments uh, that you can take about what ISIS was, and some would argue it was potentially a state. Uh, I mean, in terms of what they administered as a government, they had license plates and currency, they took tax revenue, um, they protected people, and they attempted to adjudicate issues. Um, and so in that regard, ISIS was essentially a sovereign nation, could be an argument. Um, from a military perspective, I, we looked at ISIS as an army. And that is an important context to take. They were a conventional, capable military um, that were, was required to hold ground and retain that ground in an effort to expand their so-called caliphate. Um, but Mosul was an, an entirely complex battlefield 
because it was roughly the size of Philadelphia. And so you have millions of civilians in and around this dense um, urban environment that's biblical in nature. Uh, and I think that's another important um, contextual thing to bring. You know, in, in some parts of Old Mosul, you have seven layers of subterranean surface in the catacombs of biblical times. Um, and all of that equates to what a modern urban battlefield would look like and feel like. Uh, so in short, you have millions of civilians. Uh, you have thousands of members of ISIS that are willing to die for their cause, and they have capable um, resources to bring to bear. And then on our side, we have obviously the United States military, um, but working by, with, and through an Iraqi coalition of disparate um, security organizations, be it a federal police organization, a special operations counterterrorism organization, and then, um, as Mark will speak to, a conventional army, all bringing together their resources and their equities in an attempt to um, dislodge ISIS from Mosul. And I think one other key point is they had about two years of preparation time to prepare Mosul as a defensive fighting position because they did not want to lose sort of the jewel of the caliphate. So two years to prepare a you know, linear defense with supplementary and alternate positions, knowing that the Iraqi forces' axis of advance would be from south to north, all oriented in that direction. Um, and so it was an incredibly dense and complex environment, like uh, Brett said. And I think it's important to highlight, right, and, and you said it, Mosul is really the jewel of the caliphate at this point. It is the biggest city that they control, right? It's really the, the only major stopping point between Iraqi forces or American forces and things going on in Syria. It kind of... Um, you know, is there, there one big stronghold that's left in Iraq at this point? So with that in mind, kind of walk me through, um, and I'll, I'll start over here, walk me through kind of what your mission was and how you guys kind of went about, went about doing it, given the nature of the defense that you faced, as you said, with well-prepared obstacles, well-prepared fighting positions in a city the size of Philadelphia. So initially, 9th IA, uh, my partnered force um, was clearing up from the south. So they, after the east side was cleared, uh, there was a bridgehead established um, near Kiar West airfield. The Iraqi forces flowed from the east side to the west side, kind of set up on a, on a linear uh, line of deployment. And the 9th IA, with brigades clearing individual sectors, cleared up to sort of the outskirts of the city. And what my company did uh, was kind of leapfrog behind them and either um, accompany them, their brigade headquarters, or catch up to the brigade headquarters depending on how far forward everything was moving. Uh, and they did that for about a week, moving closer and closer to the city uh, until we, we hit the Yarmouk area, the Yarmouk power station area. And my company headquarters moved up with them, established a Company CP with all communications uh, arrays of SIPR voice, um, you know, OSRVT, as well as mortar firing position, Q50 radar system uh, to kind of enable their operations. And so this entire time as their brigades are kind of conducting this very conventional linear fight of, of moving the flot forward, uh, we were moving behind them, setting up for a few days or a week in uh, an Iraqi building that was abandoned, establishing our comms package, 
and then striking targets in support of their maneuver or advising their maneuver or um, feeding them information from ISR so that they could better affect their fight. Uh, and that happened, and that, and that worked for about two to three weeks until we got to the Yarmouk area. We set up there, uh, and that was the trigger for the CTS and the Fed pole to start you know, fighting up through the, the actual densest portions of the city. Um, my partnered element, you know, mounted with BMPs, T-72s, M1A1 Abrams, um, most of our maneuver was through what you might consider like a suburban area, so the houses had gaps and, and walled compounds and and much more open than necessarily the high-rise structures, although there were some, you know, four- to five-story buildings in the area. Um, it was a little bit more sparsely uh, or a little less dense than than actual old Mosul was. I think it's important to highlight something that Mark is talking about, and especially for the value of the listeners. The difference between the battles that we have fought earlier on, be it in Afghanistan or Iraq, um, and the enemies that we fought on those battlefields are vastly different than what Mosul was. And what Mark just highlighted, and I think it's important to have a conversation about, is this battlefield isn't the way that you would conceive of the battlefield in Afghanistan. We're not fighting out of these combat outposts. Um, we're not company commanders moving forward and, and grabbing you know, seven Afghan partners and calling it a joint patrol. This is a symmetric battlefield. The geometry is as though you were walking out of a maneuver captain's career course brief, and you could take that overlay and put it on the map of Mosul. And it's, it's important to recognize that because when we say enable, it's more than just enabling the physical parts of that battlefield. It's more than just striking the targets in support of their day-to-day operations. We were also enabling their logistics. Um, we were also enabling their ability to reconstitute their priority assets um, be it blades or um, in the form of bulldozers in order to berm up um, to combat against their our VBID threat. Um, and so I, I think it's important right off the get to to conceptualize this as a as a no-kidding symmetrical battlefield. Well, this and that gets actually to the questions I was going to ask you. So you talked about advising, you talked about the, we've discussed a little bit about the enemy. So what, what do those things mean in this context, right? I, I have only ever been to Afghanistan, but even there, right? we would have ETTs or MTTs or whatever, or omelets or whatever you want to call them, um, that we're doing advising, right? We have SVABs that are doing advising, but this is a different, a little bit different sort of animal. So can you sort of describe that? And then we can discuss the enemy because I do think it's important that it is a very different enemy than I faced in Afghanistan over, over my time there. So for my partner, the sort of conventional force, um, our advising, you know, I, I developed a Maku mm-hmm. for them. I briefed their battalion commanders on the maneuver plan that I thought would be the, make the most sense based on, you know, doing MDMP for them, um, as well as it, you know the advising, which m- much more hands-on. You know, having a I would either have the brigade commander in my talk, I would go to his sort of little talk CP or one of his LNOs, so we're on the radio with him constantly as he's maneuvering forces. Mm-hmm. He's got a battalion in contact saying, hey, I'm, I'm receiving contact from this location. If Potentially, depending on which part of the fight it was, I could physically see it or I could see it with some sort of sensor mm-hmm. um, or he would just call it up and we would then either leverage one, a US asset, try to advise on what we could or could not help him with mm-hmm. depending on what was in the area. So it was a very hands-on, in-depth 
um, type of advising. And I, for a while, it was called A3E, Advise, Assist, Accompany, and Enable. And I think they changed that to just Company, Advise, and Assist. But I think the difference between an MTT, which is training, mm -hmm. and what we were doing, which is more of a active advising, active enabling, um, to, and then to Brett's point, you know, when they would have a vehicle breakdown, the advisor network, I would call up through my battalion command to back to Baghdad of, hey, where are the parts for this tank so we can get it forward? How many AT4s are in inventory? Uh, because they're out. So there was the active advising for combat as well as the other war fighting functions such as sustainment uh, that we were helping advise or helping enable. I think a pertinent analogy to use, especially for the listeners that are in the military, is imagine you're at a national training center, be it NTC, JRTC, and the network of advisors or your OC packages that you would typically have in a training environment, um, that's essentially the architecture of the network that we were. Um, so imagine yourself as an OC, but now you not only have the OC capabilities and the, and the inside communications platforms and the ability to see a situation more broadly than perhaps the person who's in contact as a leader, but now imagine yourself as an OC that has all of the capabilities of the Department of Defense at bear and you're authorized to tell your partnered force really what's going on. And so what we're doing as a network of advisors up and down the chain of command and across broadly is we're garnering a better situational awareness for our partners. And then we're having a resource discussion um, as much as we are having a tactical discussion about, hey, Mark, you move your forces left, you're gonna go and envelop a part of the city. CTS is gonna go straight up the middle um, in almost a sort of frontal attack kind of way um, this is the sort of dense urban trade that FedPol is, is doing to my right. How are we prioritizing rounds? Wh who is going to get the next bulldozer that we're painting black and putting armor on um, in terms of the sustainment resource fight, right? Is it going to be CTS or are we going to prioritize some sort of asset uh, to the conventional part of the fight? And how are we synchronizing this battlefield and then enabling it, not just in the physical environment, um, be it direct or indirect rounds, but also getting back to this modern battlefield concept is how are we also enabling them in the electromagnetic spectrum, in the cyber domain? Are we hurting? Can we herd um, the civilian population away from the battle? And how are we delineating between deliberate intelligence-driven targets in depth and what the Air Force is capable of delivering in that domain um, vice the dynamic targets that we're striking in support of day-to-day -day operations? And so the complexity of that environment and our ability to speak with one another on an advisor network uh, in conjunction with our partners, I think just um, it's an interesting thing. So it's not, again, an MTT where it's how can we better train or equip the Afghan forces um, or in this particular case, the Iraqi security apparatus. It's it's much more day to day. So before we move away from from advising, I think it's I think something that's salient here is a discussion of who you who are you doing this with? And what I mean by that is you are advising a brigade commander. As, a com as an American company commander, do you have a staff? Do you have people who are there to support and run the logistics, or is that your XO doing that? Because again, in theory, right, that brigade commander has entire formations that are built to do those things and staff officers to run that that you as a company commander don't have organic to you. Um, so do you have stuff sliced to you? Do you have things available that are people and things available to you that are gonna help support you, yeah. you running all those all those different advisory operations so understanding that this was going to be our mission we prepared for it before we deployed and 
my company was plussed up with additional officers uh, to be able to run that. So I had not only my platoon leaders and my XO, but I had the mortar platoon leader from the mortar platoon, and I had a couple other officers from across the battalion to serve as an S2 advisor, a uh, S4 advisor, uh, to be able to advise uh, those pieces. Now, generally, we ended up just, I would take S2, S3, uh, as well as the commander. Mm -hmm. uh, my um, FSO would be taking fires. Sort of the, the logistics piece would be done as, as needed uh, through my XO or my supply sergeant. Um, but at the tactical level, at least for the Iraqi Army Brigade tactical level, um, they didn't have the staff processes in place that we would normally think of in a brigade combat team. Uh, it was a little bit more informal with their, their own interactions, um, talking to their higher headquarters. It was very commander-centric. Um, you know, the S2 uh, would meet with us, and I would either pass information, he would pass me information. Um, the fires, uh, lieutenant colonel for uh, the artillery would kind of plan artillery, um, mm -hmm. and then we would kind of refine his plan, and we would support with ours. So the staff processes weren't an issue because I don't think they were as mature in the Iraqi Army Brigade as we would think of as an, in a U.S. Army Brigade. And so having not having a staff didn't hinder my ability to advise. Okay. Um, so I'll transition. I'll go. I'll go over here. And you. So you were with CTS, which is a little bit different mission set. It's a little bit the the forces you're interacting with function differently. Um, so can you kind of walk us through what what the CTS fight looked like and what your experience was with them in in Mosul? Sure. Yep. And CTS, the Counterterrorism Service for the Iraqi um, Army, is a very very well trained and equipped force, and they're they're violent and good in, in a good way. <laughs> Um, they are a capable infantry fighting force that we have, we being the larger United States government, have been training and equipping for decades. Um, so when you look at constant uh, special operations rotations uh, across our apparatus, you have forces that have been there for years and years and years, and they're equipped in a way that makes sense. So uh, unlike Mark's situation with a conventional Iraqi army and a failing government or a failed government in some cases, trying to reconstitute an army, we have a well-standing organization that is um, um, already capable of, of fighting the enemy, and they've done that for years and years and years, and I think that's another important part, is these, these men uh, were fighting um, like it was another day, and they have been doing that pretty consistently. Um, so they had well-developed um, tactics and techniques, but they also had well-developed understanding of what the advisor network was and how to leverage us um, to the best of their ability. So it was to the point, just to give a perspective, if, you know, the battalion, at the battalion level, the guy that I was advising spoke fluent English. Mm -hmm. He was a graduate of the Maneuver Captain's Career Course. He was a graduate of the United States um, Special Operations Qualification Course um, and a graduate of the United States Army Ranger School. So when you look at a guy like that, it, it's very much like having a conversation like we are today with my counterpart, uh, very well-versed and has fought an enemy for decades. Um, and so our conversations and our abilities were, okay, if you're going to do this sort of plan, and, and he would walk me through what his intent was, um, we would then describe, okay, I need this sort of asset at this time in order to potentially mitigate your risk in this part of the operation. Um, so the CTS, all that being said, the CTS were used as a, um, as a predominant sort of force 
to get after the hard set problems because of their manning and equipping um, and, and how well trained they were. Um, but that said, they were put in positions that were extremely difficult and they were put against targets um, or, or missions that may not have suited them best, if that makes sense. Um, mm -hmm. So they were doing things that perhaps a conventional army yeah, they're, should they're, be doing. They're seizing and holding grounds, right. not, not doing, doing, doing a raid. Yeah. <laughs> so um, that said, is you know that's where the advisor network had to come in is, okay, how do we take a counterterrorism-centric organization that's manned and trained to do that sort of thing and ask them to do conventional army, hold, retain ground, um, you know, build, bull, have bulldozers building berms to, to protect ourselves from VBIDs and such. So, um, so vastly different. And Mark and I were less than a kilometer from each other. Vastly different partner sets, entirely different equities. Mm -hmm. And it's also important to understand that those equities and how the advisor network is working is, you know, at the end of the day, Mosul's going to be taken. We're going to win this thing. What happens next? Mm -hmm. Where is Mark's partner going in the Iraqi army? What is the the ministry going to ask him to do? What is the CTS going to do? Uh, and where are they going next in their part of the fight? And it's it's more than just Mosul. It's, there's a longevity here that we need to not only um, you know win and defeat ISIS, but we also have to retain these folks in order to keep the security situation after we win Mosul and after we push ISIS back into the, Syria, uh, to the Syrian border. So there's some of the other longer term consequences that we're talking about and thinking about as, um, as this battle went on. Yeah. Yeah. And there's some Iraqi politics, I think, that are outside of the scope of this. But one of the key aspects, at least for the 9th Iraqi Armored Division, was this is all the tanks that they have for Iraq. So they're not pushing those tanks into the densest urban environment where, you know, the, the, the risk of losing those systems is so much higher. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the armor was kept on the outskirts of the city or in the kind of open areas that could be bermed up behind buildings so that they weren't uh, at risk for RPG, you know, 7s and 29s and, and some of the other weapon systems that were out there. And so that's why they never really got into the city where they could have probably been used very effectively. And that was a political decision based on what's, what's the future of the Iraqi forces going to be, not necessarily a tactical one. So I think this is a good point to, to transition to a discussion that we were having before we started recording, because I think ultimately the, your experience in Mosul is indicative of a lot of what maybe we can expect, where there's sort of a combination of conventional, old style, if I can use that word, old style conflict, right? We talked about 15-minute smoke targets that are enabling the maneuver of armored brigades through, you know, a suburban area combined with CT guys fighting in an urban space, a dense urban space, um, seizing and holding ground, overlaid on top and, and functioning in conjunction with drone swarms, with electromagnetic spectrum conflict, um, with managing and handling a civilian populace with managing and handling the information operation side of, uh, of the fight. So I'm curious how, how those two, what the interplay between those were, either for Ninth Army or for CTS and how you guys experienced those in the fight. Because I think Mosul is a, a really interesting test case for all of these things that I think the US Army is starting to recognize are just the way that the world is going to operate, how we're going to fight sort of from here on out. So, yeah. so with the conventional piece, 
you know, we did conventional operations overlay on a map. Here's my TT Lodak, here's my smoke targets, and here's the triggers for, you know, whether they're terrain denial or interdiction fires, here's my time on target analysis. All of that was done for the ninth IA, and I'm sure it was also done with CTS. Um, but you still have, we still had drone contact, we still had jamming, and um, I think that's just, and I think Brett will talk a little bit more in depth on this, but I think that's just kind of the future of conventional warfare. Um, it's not necessarily old school um, versus new school, it's that the proliferation of you know commercial off-the-shelf jamming and UAVs and all of those things enable what was you know a state actor ISIS, but a poorly funded state actor mm -hmm. to still employ all of those you know cross-domain multi-spectrum assets against us or against the Iraqis that we're just not used to having to deal with. We're not used to having to have to look up and be like, okay, do I actually own the skies? You know, I, I do. Like Brett's going to talk about over 2,000 feet, but under 2,000 feet, I don't. Yeah. Um, and so I, I didn't see it as much on the outskirts with 9th AA. It was a little bit more conventional as we mm -hmm. think of like um, maneuvering armor brigades, but we still had some of those. But it's, but it's additive, right? It's not right. nothing that would have happened 50 years ago was missing from what you were having to do, right? Everything that you were having to do would have happened in 1945, but with all this other stuff on top of it. Right. Absolutely. And I think that this, there's two parts to this is it's we can talk um, across functions and domains to describe a complex urban battlefield. And I think that's pertinent to a conversation about the Battle of Mosul more than war stories, you know, shooting to and from. And then the other component is the type of enemy that we're facing. And I knew we were going to pull on that thread a little bit. And it's again, to put in perspective, this isn't uh, an enemy that is wearing sandals and has an AK-47 and runs behind your your formation shoots a couple rounds in order to disrupt your partnered operation and keep pressure on like we've seen for decades in Afghanistan. Um, and that's a hard enemy to fight, no doubt. But what you see here is a not very well trained, partly, I guess, okay, equipped military, but the mindset of ISIS is an army and it expands and it holds terrain. And it because of that, you have a more traditional enemy and certainly not a near peer enemy. But like Mark says, is you have an enemy that's willing to meet you in forms of contact that we don't necessarily train for and that we're not really cognitively equipped for as a force. Um, and so when we go to JRTC or we go to NTC and we prepare for these sorts of battlefields, we're really good at talking about the direct forms of contact and the indirect forms of contact and non-hostile be it civilians on the battlefield. And we prepare our formations and we prepare our leaders and soldiers to come into contact with the enemy in those ways. But what we learned in Mosul is that there's an entirely different sort of functions and domains that the enemy can bring to bear. Some of which, and I will pull on an anecdote to tell you, is uh, with the counter UAS, the UAS fight, is in the beginning days of our attack into West Mosul, CTS began their, their approach. We're going to attack this sliver of land um, and it's and we're going to start this urban battle and today we're going to take four blocks that's it and we're going to stop and there is a forward line uh, and so we approach that forward line and we begin to fight isis um, and ex rounds are exchanged we bring strikes um, a little bit farther in depth in support of that operation um, and we're striking dynamically in support of them and then all of a sudden 
we start hearing radio calls that there are DJI drones, quadcopter drones, commercial off the shelf, stuff that you can buy off Amazon for a few hundred dollars. And it's interesting. It's for the first time, you know, I'm a young leader, but for the first time, we're seeing something that we don't necessarily have air superiority anymore. This air supremacy or the concept of that above 2,000 feet, like Mark says, probably exists. We have all kinds of platforms above head. But what we don't own is a sliver of altitude that's just above my head to about 2,000 feet. And what ISIS was able to do is use, you know, the, the numbers aren't exact, but we approximate probably 10 separate drones flown by 10 separate people, but they did multiple sorties. And so when you have multiple sorties of multiple drones flying simultaneous on the same battlefield, the, the psychological effect that that has on your organization is swarming, though it's not technically a drone swarm, um, but you have an effect of 30 plus drones. So we have Iraqis counterterrorism service saying, hey, I've got drones all over the place. I'm seeing 30, 40 drones, mm -hmm. and they're flying all these sorties. And then the capability that ISIS was able to bring a little bit later on in the battle was, those DJI drones are not just drones that fly with cameras on the bottom of them. They're able to retrofit 40 millimeter grenades, and now it's, you have armed ISR, the same way that we would employ it. Mm -hmm. But what is important to draw out in this electromagnetic spectrum, in this sort of drone anecdote that I'm droning on about, <laughs> is that, <laughs> We see a psychological effect, which I think is important, and it stopped the counterterrorism service in its tracks. And they come to us and say, hey, you're the United States government, you're the United States military, you have F-35s and F-16s and all these things that you bring to bear. Certainly you can do something to stop these drones. Our initial response was, we don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. We have capabilities in the electromagnetic spectrum, but I don't know that we can employ those in an offensive way. Mm -hmm. And so what, what we ended up doing was iterating and uh, this innovation cycle at Echelon and we were able to take what the NFL uses, what the Kardashians use to protect their wedding from drones, what inter, any international airport uses to protect their sort of territory from drones. We took that commercial off the self technology and employed it on the back of an up-armored LMTV, ratchet strapped that thing down, and then drove it into West Mosul the next day. And so what I was able to do in support of the CTS by, with, and through is while they're in a direct firefight, I'm moving an anti-counter drone system on an LMTV four blocks behind him, and I'm shooting lightning bolts around. Mm -hmm. And what I'm doing is attempting to detect and fix these uh, quadcopters. I'm shooting in the electromagnetic spectrum jamming signals mm -hmm. that are able to, at minimum, neutralize the drone, at best, um, knock it off out of the sky, or at least get it to the point where the CTS can physically shoot it down. And then we grab that drone and we do some tech intelligence with it. Mm -hmm. And now we're able to determine where all of these drones have both originated from and flow flown to, what their paths and sorties look like. Mm -hmm. And if you start necking that down and you can get into a targeting cycle that's about 20 minutes, uh, what you're finding is ISIS is employing these drones the same way that we do in order to create a combined arms effect. And so they're prioritizing their mortar and indirect rounds. They're showing V-bids. Where, where do we need to prioritize our V-bids? Because we only have so many of them. How are we going to employ those things? And what you see is ISIS commanders are co-located with these drone operators. And so if you can get that targeting cycle down, where can I neutralize it in the electromagnetic spectrum, grab that drone, get some intelligence off of it, and strike said target, all of a sudden you're inside of the decision space and you're affecting the decision calculus of ISIS leaders and you're fracturing their network. Now the VBID driver doesn't know where to drive. The mortarman, though he has the resources, the tube and the rounds next to him, doesn't know where to shoot. And the three to five man infantry squad that's in a well-prepared, defensed, def defended position 
um, doesn't necessarily know if those enablers are going to come to the battlefield. And so now he, ISIS, is a little bit more concerned about, can I, in fact, fight this peered enemy, the CTS, or be it a conventional Iraqi army? And, and so they, we got them back on their heels. And that's when we exploit. And that's when the CTS starts driving forward. The point of that whole anecdote, though, is to talk about the modern urban battlefield is far more than AK-47s, direct fire and indirect fire, and civilians on the battlefield. It is the electromagnetic spectrum. It's what we're doing in the cyber spectrum. It's how information in that environment is affecting civilians and where they're staying and where they're migrating to and the flow of those civilians. Um, it's, so it's far more complex than what I think we give credit to. It's far more complex than what we're able to train to currently. Yeah. Um, and so those are some of the anecdotes that I think are important to drive up. And I think another key point is in Mosul, you could get 40 gigabytes of data for your Roshan phone for $40. It was cheaper to have L, you know, LTE Wi-Fi in, in Mosul than it is in the United States. So ISIS's ability and, and their ability to communicate is not necessarily hindered by normal jamming techniques and things like that. Their ability to share information to communicate across through all of those um, systems is, is also very difficult to stop mm -hmm. when you talk about getting onto the internet. And that, it, part of what Brett's talking about is all the different domains and, and you know the normal infantry company doesn't have the ability to to affect their, somebody's ability to use a cell phone sure. or to communicate on the internet you know, or to shoot down a drone. And, um, you know, the other, one of the other aspects we saw was just the, um, you know, there's a little bit of chemical warfare as well, small scale chemical warfare, um, use of mustard and chlorine, uh, mustard munitions. Uh, another thing that while we talk about uh, and we kind of, we kind of train for, um, something you really have to be prepared to, to execute because when the time comes that you need it, uh, it's, it's, it's a very emotional event. So. Well, and, and again, I think what's really interesting about this discussion in particular is, is again, the, the additive nature of it, right? So the, your anecdote about the drones is great. That's absolutely something that we need to be able to train for. And underneath that, it still is people have to go from building A across a street, breach whatever obstacles are either in the street or at building B, get into building B, kill people inside, set up defensive perimeter around building B. All, all those things that would normally happen still, still have to occur. Um, you, you can't stop training small unit tactics. You have to train small unit tactics and then add on yeah. Everything, else. Everything else on top of it. Plus, and, and we haven't talked to this this point yet, right? Moving from building A to building B maybe doesn't happen across the street. Maybe it happens in a subsurface structure, or maybe right. there's a supersurface way to move from building A to building B, or maybe, right. So there's all these all these different dynamics that are interplaying with each other that make the battlefield so much more complex. So I guess the question I, I have for you guys is, given that as we've said a couple of times, right? Officers of my generation, uh, well, I won't speak for officers of my generation. I have very limited personal experience um, in it, that sort of environment. Um, so I'm curious how well we are adapting and handling that sort of fight with the levels of complexity. Um, because again, I never went to Baghdad in the early stages of the war, but even in a, a place like Baghdad in the, you know, in the 2005, 6, 7, 8 sort of time frame, 
um, the level of complexity seems lower and the type of enemy that you're facing within that level of complexity, environmental complexity, um, seems different. So how, how have we handled and how are we adapting to fighting in that complex space against an enemy that is a more sort of conventional, more potentially deadly threat to us? I, I, that's a, I mean, it's a great question and I don't know that I can accurately answer, you know, how it is that our formations are adapting to it. But I will say, I think, what I think is important in, in, in attempting to address some of these issues and the complexities of future battlefields, um, and be it Mosul, potentially one of the first that we're able to draw out some of these conversations, is that this sort of forum, be it a podcast, a conversation, um, you know, a written article um, that's published that describes the sort of lessons learned in a complex urban environment like Mosul is important. It's not enough anymore to say, I've been to combat and I have that experience, whatever, and I'm using air quotes for others, right? Whatever that experience is, you're, you're combat hardened veteran. Thank you for your service. But how are we codifying some of these lessons that are being learned? And then how are we then institutionalizing ways in which we counter it? And it's not about countering drones. It's not about, you know, dealing with millions of civilians in terms of a material solution. The point is, it's something you have to consider. And it's a domain or a function that isn't in the back of your mind and it's not secondary to your direct firefight. It is, like you've said, additive in nature. And it's, it's important now for our leaders and our soldiers to understand that you have to be experts at the basics. Um, but those basics are changing mm-hmm. to a degree. And I, I know that's probably a controversial statement. Those basics are changing. How is that, how is that the case? But you shoot, move, and communicate. Mm-hmm. But up to this point, you shoot, move, and communicate in a paradigm that we're talking about in the physical environment. What I just described to you though is shoot, move, and communicate in an electromagnetic environment. And it's the same thing, the basics apply. I need to take now this, what was a defensive sort of counter UAS system, and I need to use it in an offensive way. And I need to shoot things that you can't see in a spectrum that is all around us and in in a complex environment in order to affect the cognition of my enemy. Mm in addition to protecting myself with physical assets. And so I think it is now pertinent for conversations to be taking place to say, doctrinally, what are the basics that we have always talked about? And then how do I apply said basics to multifunctions in all domain? Um, and that's, that's a hard conversation. It's even harder to institutionalize those things. Um, so to your point and to, to inadequately answer your question is, I don't know what we're doing, um, but I do know that these sorts of conversations, I think, are the first step. And, you know, we, we look at the, the leader model, so what do leaders do, you know, visualize, describe, direct, lead, and assess, right? So you have to, as the leaders, you have to visualize what are some of the problems that I may come up with, you know, describe them, direct how we're going to implement solutions. But the important part of that is the iterative assessment loop of, okay, yes, I've, I've figured out this problem, but there's going to be another one. I have to continue to assess, was this effective, was it not effective, what is a potential um, for the future that I'm going to have to work on. So I remember before we deployed, you know, it was kind of jokingly, but Colonel Downing was talking about, hey, you know, you guys got to start thinking of ways to shoot down drones. And we were like, okay, you could shoot a giant cargo net up or, you know, everyone would have a shotgun. We were just trying to, how, how are we going to do this, you know? So foresight, forethought on that was you have to start thinking as a leader. You have to visualize what the battlefield and the battle space is going to be about um, and then describe and direct to your subordinates but consistently assessing 
and leading in that sort of iterative feedback loop, which is a very broad answer to your no, very specific no, question. but that's <laughs> but that's very much. I, I think that's very much in line with discussions that that we've had here, and I think that the the larger force is having is it's a physical impossibility for me to train my rifle company to do all of the things across all the domains that I need to be able to interact in or, or work in. So how do I how do I get at that? Well, it's we're going to be experts at the basics and we're going to develop processes to do adaptation quickly. Well, even even the largest sort of mount sites on a post are kind of equivalent to a small European hamlet circa 1945, you know. You're not going to build a, a training area or a, a mount site the size of Philadelphia to then send divisions into. So um, some of it's always going to be, there is that one, there's a site in Indiana, but. I, th I think what's important though in terms of training is it, it's not necessarily going to be about how do I best replicate the said complex environment in order to train a rifle company to it, but it's, it's, the, it's, a, it's a cognitive problem set that we're dealing with now is how do I get a rifle company commander or for that matter me in particular, how do I get a lieutenant um, that's a platoon leader to think about his rifle platoon or his or her rifle platoon or rifle company in the physical land domain to affect key terrain. So I'm now using these tactical terms in ter I don't need you to take Hill 187. Mm -hmm. What I need you to do is take a cyber key terrain, or I need you to affect in the electromagnetic domain, the airspace between zero and 2000 feet. And I need you as a land force rifle company to do that because the air force can't right now. And so the idea is more of how do I employ land domain forces in other domains or how do I support other domains and vice versa? I think that's where the conversation's at. Is It's very much shoot, move, and communicate as I already spoke to. And it's the same sort of doctrinal principles, but instead of taking the hill as a piece of key terrain, we're now conceptualizing a battlefield that's a little bit different, a little bit more complex, and there are other things that you can do with it. And I think you know, this isn't the first time we've adopted to, to complex things. Airland battle is an example of how, how are we going to use these air forces and land forces to support one another. And you have air defense artillery units in an institutional land force that's able to affect air space. And so I think, you know, we can draw on history to say how have we adopted these sort of institutionalized principles in the past and how are we going to do it again in the future. The difference, though, is it's happening exponentially faster than it has in the past. And so to have these conversations, things are already changing. And um, so it, it's time now to get a generation of leaders that are both smart enough to understand and visualize, as Mark said, and then rapidly assess and change. And that takes that means risk. And I think us, as we go up through the ranks, um, need to understand that risk isn't something that we can own in a centralized manner. And in this rapid evolving complex battlefield in multi-functions and multi-domains is we're gonna have to accept probably more risk than what we're willing to and drive that down to a, a very smart, hopefully very well-trained and equipped younger leader mm -hmm. and, and just accept it. And I think Mosul is, is one of the first examples of that. You know, Mark and I had, are, as captains had what traditionally as lieutenants would have been decisions being made by at minimum a one to three star in terms of dropping ordinance in that sort of dense urban population um, in support of this massive ground maneuver, armored formations that Mark is dealing with, you know, those are decisions being made at the general officer level, not anymore. Those are decisions being made by two company commanders that are captains. And, um, and that is a lot of risk associated with that, of course. But I think you see 
it worked. Mm -hmm. yeah, you have to push decision-making and authorities as close to the fight as you can, as you're comfortable with, because what I'm seeing on a day-to-day -day basis is hard to communicate. And, and uh, Brett and I had some of these instances when he was initially in Erbil's. I'm seeing stuff right in front of me. He's seeing stuff on you know, national technical means. You know, and how do you communicate those quickly and, and who's going to be right? And um, very like flat, a very flat organization with easy communication is about the only way to get that to, to be passed the way it needs to be passed. All right. Well, we've been going for a bit now, so I'm going to cut us off. Um, but I think this is a really good discussion. I think a really worthwhile conversation to be having, not just, as you said, anecdotally about the specifics of what happened in Mosul, kind of about the larger trends and the, the institutional uh, things we can glean from, from your guys' experience. So thank you. Hey, thanks for listening to The Spear. One last thing before you go, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. It is a great way to stay up to date on what we're doing so you don't miss any of the new articles, podcasts, and research we're publishing every day. Thanks again for listening.